It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's start by stating the patently obvious. The digital revolution has come for us all. It has come to shape our lives in ways that many of us still don't understand. People are becoming addicted to all the technology, the Twitter and the Facebook. The ability for these movements to scale using internet and communication technologies. The real world implications of weaponized data. Just think about how you came to this podcast. It's highly likely that you're listening to this on your smartphone, a device that both draws upon and generates an endless trove of digital exhaust. From rideshare services to dating apps, your phone beams out all sorts of data points about you and your entire life to servers distributed all over the world. Some of that information is housed by multi-billion dollar companies who sell it to interested parties. And some of that information is just out there for the taking publicly available as open source data that anyone can grab and use. Social media and our connected devices are not just banal platforms for sharing prom photos and party selfies. The ubiquity of the internet is shaping the very face of human interaction, and every single one of us has a part in it. A 21st century war happening every day in this country. Our institutions are under cyber attack. There is a clear information war going on. Both parties are using social media. Seeing is not enough for believing. Fail to prioritize cybersecurity. Many are recruited through a powerful online media campaign. And as these battles play out on our smartphones, we are hurtling towards a crossroads. 
one where we must accept this modern landscape of conflict and learn how to navigate it. I'm Peter Singer. I'm a strategist and senior fellow at New America and a professor at Arizona State University. My name is Emerson Brooking. I'm a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council. Together, the two of us wrote a book laying out a new paradigm, a concept to understand and defend against the new threats of a network world. It's an idea we call like war. A battle for our likes, shares, and minds that's playing out right now across politics, technology, and social media. Part one, a digital caliphate. It's the year 2014. We begin our journey in northern Iraq, the city of Mosul to be precise. It's been more than a decade since the U.S. invasion, where dictator Saddam Hussein had banned mobile phones. Now 75% of all Iraqis own one. The 150,000 Iraqis who were online in 2003 has surged to nearly 4 million. Iraqi teenagers who had grown up in a post-invasion Iraq are now internet savvy. They form relationships and engage with culture online. They weren't all that different from their American counterparts. People who were confused by this didn't really understand just how quickly smartphones were spreading around the world. The fact that it wasn't that hard to have okay internet access, to have a smart device, to have, at the worst, a solar power generator and a slow satellite uplink. But there were plenty of ways for people to connect. And not only that, but they knew how to use social media just as well as anyone in the West. In those ways, Iraq had changed dramatically. But in other ways, the country had remained the same. The historic rivalry between the country's Shia majority and Sunni minority still simmered. The U.S. occupation had been followed by a civil war that had left over a quarter million Iraqi civilians and soldiers dead. But the Iraqi police and army who patrolled the nation's northwest quadrant were some of the most well-funded forces in the entire world. The decade of support from U.S. and coalition forces had given them weapons, budgets, and training that most other countries couldn't dream of. But it wouldn't prove enough to deter a new threat. Iraq's future will be in the hands of its people. In the summer of 2014, a new power was brewing to the West. An army of radical religious fighters had grown from a decentralized militia into an all-out conquering horde. A group popularly known as ISIS. Their goal is to form an Islamist state ruled by Sharia law in parts of Iraq. Another attack being blamed on ISIS, the third mass terror attack carried out by the terror group in the last week. For too long until too late, the Islamic State was just considered one more group of the innumerable groups fighting in the Syrian civil war. And the Islamic State was composed of a hard core of Islamic militants who had fought American forces in Iraq after the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. 
These guys weren't the most online savvy, but they understood how to fight, how to intimidate, and how to engage in terrorist tactics. But it was this hardcore group who then joined with disaffected Assyrians in their teens and 20s who didn't have as much experience fighting, but who were very familiar with how to use social media and the internet to advance their goals. These two sorts of factions got together, and from there, they were able to be extraordinarily successful on the digital battlefield that was a Syrian civil war, and then soon enough, the real battlefield. But ISIS was not exactly the organized, well-fitted army their ambition would have you believe. Its invading force was only a few thousand men. They were armed with a mix of modern and antiquated weapons, AK-47s firing alongside slashing swords, certainly nothing like the tanks and helicopters the Americans had gifted to the Iraqi army and police, which were over a hundred times their size. If ISIS was going to be successful in its quest, it would have to find a different way to win. It would have to distort the reality around it using that very same network. That's where ISIS would find its campaign's greatest tools. Not a rifle or a Humvee, but weapons designed to win on the online battlefield. Enter an army of Twitter bots, a content factory, and a viral marker. Hashtag all eyes on ISIS. ISIS released a new video today showing the execution of 21 Coptic Christians kidnapped in Libya. Another gruesome video, this time of Japanese journalist Kenji Goto. This video really marks ISIS on the world stage. There wasn't any special training that a lot of these ISIS militants had to go through in order to use this technology. They understood it intuitively. They understood it just as well as a, a teenager in L.A., so ISIS had the knowledge and the skills already to use social media effectively. But by the summer of 2014, they'd begun to experiment with new tactics as well. Notably, the Islamic State developed a smartphone app called the Dawn of Glad Tidings. And if you downloaded it off of uh, the Google Play Store in the Middle East, it would automatically integrate with your Twitter account and uh, ISIS could basically tweet from your account. And what that enabled as thousands of people downloaded this was that ISIS could very tightly control and manipulate trending topics on Arabic-speaking Twitter. And in practice what that meant was that if you were anywhere in the Arabic world you and you were using Twitter, you would see hashtags that the Islamic State wanted you to see. Oh my brothers, come to jihad and feel the honor we are feeling, feel the happiness that we are feeling. And if you clicked on them or expanded them, then you'd see carefully doctored and manipulated propaganda that showed ISIS's invincibility or that demonstrated their latest battlefield success. And so it was through this sort of viral propaganda process that many people in northern Iraq became familiar with ISIS, not just as a group fighting in the Syrian civil war, but as an invincible organization that always won 
and always acted with particular brutality. Now put yourself in the shoes of a resident of Mosul, Iraq. For well over a decade, you've been living in a nation at war. You're used to the presence of police and soldiers on street corners and big, sprawling bases and outposts. But in 2014, you see something you haven't seen before. Your social media feeds suddenly start showing videos from neighboring Syria. It's gruesome, violent, and organized in a whole new way. Today, the militant group ISIS posted a series of graphic photos on Twitter claiming a massacre of more than 1,700 Iraqi soldiers. On the screen right in front of you, you witness beheadings, the desecration of sacred sites, public tribunals, men set on fire. And these posts aren't just from a handful of accounts. They're coming both from serious news outlets and hundreds of profiles across your network. You feel like you're drowning in this content. It's everywhere. And now it's infiltrated conversations in your own community as well. From the posts, it looks like tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 ISIS fighters. Everywhere they go, they meet with victory and leave only death behind them. And they're constantly on the move. Every post broadcasts a new advance and a new victory and more victims. You look at those Iraqi army outposts and police stations, and suddenly you don't feel so safe. ISIS is heading right for you. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. 
love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Chilling images inside a country on the brink of another civil war. As ISIS seizes Tal Afar, another major city in Iraq. Soon, hashtag all eyes on ISIS had achieved celebrity status. It had become the top trending hashtag on Arabic Twitter, filling the screens of millions of users, including the very defenders and residents of those cities in the ISIS invading forces path. Humiliation, then execution. That's the fate the enemies of Islamic State know they face if they're defeated or captured. Look around you while you sit in comfort and ask yourself, is this how you want to die? When the jihadists captured earlier Syrian army bases, the severed heads of soldiers were displayed in public. But as the saying goes, don't believe everything you see on the internet. Some of it was true, but it was also an intentional, choreographed social media campaign organized by ISIS members and diehard online fans. They posted selfies of black-clad militants and videos of ISIS convoys driving across the desert and imagery straight out of the cult classic movie Mad Max. Those videos proved more powerful than any other weaponry. Hashtag all eyes on ISIS took on the power of an invisible artillery bombardment. It's thousands of messages spiraling out in front of the actual advancing force. Before ISIS could even reach Mosul, the proof of their destruction preceded them. The 1.8 million people in the 3,000-year-old multicultural metropolis were already afraid. The radical Islamist terrorist group ISIS apparently capturing dozens of Iraqi soldiers dressed in civilian clothes, lining them up. execution. As the ISIS vanguard approached, the city was consumed with fear, and Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish neighbors eyed each other with suspicion. In some ways, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Young Sunni men, inspired by the images of the indomitable Black Horde and acting out of fear and retribution, threw themselves into acts of terror, doing the invaders' work for them. The Islamic State's intent to sow chaos worked, leading their own opponents to make ISIS's job even easier. Today, the militant group ISIS posted a series of graphic photos on Twitter. Atrocities documented by the militants themselves and shared with the world on social media, sending a chilling message. We take no prisoners. Those claims cannot be verified, but the accusations alone represent another escalation in a battle that's moved with extraordinary speed. But the Iraqi army stood ready to protect the city, in theory at least. In reality, a catastrophe was brewing behind the scenes. Much of Mosul's 25,000 strong garrison existed only on paper, either having deserted or been invented out of thin air. Corrupt officers eager to fatten their paychecks had lied about how many soldiers were employed and pocketed the cash. 
Even worse was the fallout of ISIS's digital bombardment. The roughly 10,000 Iraqi soldiers who actually did exist were also able to track ISIS's highly publicized advance and atrocities on their smartphones. The very same fear and confusion in the heart of Mosul citizens began to flow through their ranks too. The defenders began to slip away. Soldiers and police officers started to flee Mosul. And then the trickle became a flood. Thousands of soldiers streamed from the city, many leaving their weapons and vehicles behind. Most of the city's police force followed. Army and police uniforms sat discarded and stripped off in the middle of the street, as if their wares had just vanished. Seeing the collapse of the state and fearing for their own lives, nearly a half million civilians followed. Only a handful of brave or confused forces remained behind. When the small group of ISIS members did arrive, the city of Mosul was easily overwhelmed. It wasn't a battle, but a massacre, dutifully filmed and edited for the next cycle of easy online distribution. Many Iraqi soldiers dropped their weapons and vanished. Thousands of families are now fleeing the city. Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki... As their army that they depend on for security just collapsed, they simply ran away. Troops discarded their uniforms and fled their posts, leaving Iraq's second largest city under the control of the ISIL. They're now in control of thousands of square miles of territory. They've been going to, from strength to strength for a year. ISIS never had a super weapon, never had any special battlefield tactics that made them better than any other group in the Syrian civil war. But what they had was an intuitive understanding of digital propaganda and the means to drive content viral to reach as many eyes as possible. And it became a virtuous cycle where the more propaganda they spread, the more scared their enemies were of them the more likely their enemies were to flee or simply abandon their positions, which gave ISIS battlefield victories. ISIS would, of course, do highly choreographed propaganda videos related to these victories, put those videos out, and then the process would start again. ISIS militants staged gaudy parades to celebrate their unlikely triumph. They gleefully posted pictures of the arsenal they had captured, mountains of guns and ammunition, and hundreds of American-made, state-of-the-art vehicles, from Humvees to tanks to a half-dozen Black Hawk helicopters. As ISIS captured yet another city in the north, its fighters were starting to use their new equipment, abandoned by the fleeing Iraqi army. The insurgents seized police stations, banks, and government buildings. Many Iraqi soldiers dropped their weapons and vanished. ISIS was something new to an old conflict. The group rallied a younger generation in the Middle East and then beyond. As 3,000 Westerners are fighting alongside jihadist groups in Syria and Iraq, terror analysts say those fighters pose the greatest threat to the United States because of their ability to travel freely and blend in. Soon, over 30,000 volunteers came from over 90 countries, 
drawn in by a vivid mix of everything from religious posts to hip-hop music-fused promotional videos. And it inspired others who couldn't join in person to commit acts of terror in their home countries, everywhere from Europe to Asia. And so ISIS continued to grow bigger and bigger, not just online, but in the real world. ISIS had done so by following a formula for virality that had already proven to be successful. They were able to study and replicate the connections built online to convince thousands of people from around the world to connect with thousands of other people they'd never met before. And at the center of it all was a new kind of propagandist, equipped for the digital world because he had grown up in it. At the tip of the spear of that propaganda effort was a man named Junaid Hussein. Junaid Hussein is a 21-year-old hacker turned jihadist from Birmingham who runs the IS information and recruitment arm from Syria. Junaid Hussein uh, was the most prolific English-language propagandist for ISIS. Junaid Hussein was the son of Pakistani immigrants to Britain. And he was a hacker. He was very good at it. He grew up in activist communities. He had a rich network of online friends. And in his early teen years, he hacked a personal assistant of Tony Blair and actually sought to leak some of the former prime minister's emails. He was caught. He was charged with computer crimes and he was sentenced to years in jail. While he was in prison, he was radicalized. He fell into radical Islamic interpretations and increasingly saw violence as something that was legitimate. He'd never been religious growing up, but that changed. And then when he was released from prison, this was around the time of the rise of the Islamic State. And so he got involved with ISIS first from afar and then later by making the journey to Syria. It quickly became apparent to ISIS leadership that Hussein's skills were best put to use virtually. And so he became the coordinator of a, a nascent branch of ISIS called the Cyber Caliphate. Hussein used this online presence to help foment attacks around the world and to help recruit thousands of people to come to Syria and Iraq and fight for the Islamic State. Hussein was a, a colorful, profane Twitter personality. And many people who were parts of the a Muslim diaspora in their home communities, say the, the sons of Syrian refugees or immigrants, who felt torn between often the racism and bigotry that they encountered in the West and the heritage and the places that they left behind. For people in these communities, Hussein became something of a folk hero. Hussein was an ISIS social media star. He used that to sort of talent spot potential uh, terrorists, uh, lone wolves uh, in the West, and then take the communications onto encrypted apps, almost impossible for US agencies to read. You almost, you wanted him to notice you. And if he did notice you, then over time, the conversations with him would shift away from these public-facing platforms like Twitter 
into the instant messaging platforms, into encrypted forum boards, and other places where the communications could be hidden. And those were the services through which recruiters like Hussein would orchestrate attacks or figure out the nitty-gritty of how people could take an airline flight to Istanbul and sneak over the border into Syria. Hussein became so effective at his online recruitment that he made it onto the U.S. list of the most high-value targets to seek out and kill with airstrikes. He was ranked third, only behind ISIS's overall leader and its top battlefield commander. This ranking would ultimately cause his demise by a drone strike. So what does Hussein's story tell us? The fact is that ISIS was no different than other terrorist organizations past in terms of what they could actually accomplish. They had bombs, they had secondhand assault rifles, but they didn't have any special superweapon, except for their familiarity with the internet. And Hussein, but so many other people in the organization too, understood that their power was um, how they were viewed online. The same way that Silicon Valley startups are always trying to hack growth. They understand that you have to grow as quickly as possible. That to even slow your growth rate is akin to the, the start of the death of your organization. The ISIS approach to recruiting was the same way. They wanted as many people as possible. His story and ISIS's takeover of Mosul exemplify one of the most powerful forces shaping our world. It's the concept we call like war. Hacking not computer networks, but the people on them through likes, shares, and sometimes lies. ISIS's rise and invasion is the embodiment of these digital confrontations. Most specifically, it embodies one of the central tenets of like war. Virality trumps veracity. When it comes to the power of information, its speed and reach is more important than its truth. With careful video editing, ISIS could recast an indecisive firefight as a heroic battlefield victory. But even as they lose on the battlefield, they're still waging an online propaganda war, painting themselves as a band of holy warriors. With a keen use of social media platforms, ISIS could flood the internet with their version of the truth. A few countering voices might claim otherwise, but how could they prove it? ISIS was like war on full display for the whole world to see. For many, it was the first time conflict from the digital world became a tangible fear. Indeed, largely driven by it, polling showed more Americans were afraid of terrorism in the wake of ISIS's online campaign than after the 9-11 attacks that had killed thousands. Are you afraid of ISIS? Their attacks are undeniably gruesome and designed to get maximum attention, and their strategy seems to be working. We asked ourselves whether ISIS could show up at our location next. Could someone inspired by its tweets and posts drive a truck through a crowd or bomb a public square? Tonight, ISIS claiming credit for these scenes of horror. The driver responsible for mowing down people. Chilling new reporting tonight after the terror attack inside that Christmas Hundreds killed in the last two years alone in beloved cities all over Europe. ISIS controlled the battlefield by controlling the truth, and the internet gave it a platform to do it. 
When the next war came, we'd often been told, it would be a techno nightmare marked by crashing networks, the disruption of financial markets, and electrical power outages. It would show the true power of the internet in action. But the abrupt fall of Mosul showed that there was another side to the internet's cross with 21st century war and politics. The Islamic State, which had no real or cyber war capabilities to speak of, had just run a military offensive like a viral marketing campaign and had won a victory that shouldn't have been possible. It hadn't hacked the network. It had hacked the people using it. But that was just the beginning. Everywhere, armed groups and governments had begun generating information operations and war propaganda that lived alongside the internet's infinite supply of silly memes and funny videos. Parts of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, went dark. The Israeli Defense Forces and Hamas militants began fighting multiple Twitter wars before a global audience. Israel said it attacked terrorist infrastructure and weapon storage locations. Meanwhile, Hamas continued to fire rockets at civilian areas. When Russian forces annexed Crimea and chomped away at eastern Ukraine, their military and intelligence agency began targeting soldiers and politicians to push their narratives. Russia's covert support for rebels in eastern Ukraine was underway, so anything that made Ukrainian government soldiers look bad was a priority. Democracy does not exist. Our system is much more stable because we, we have much, more, much stronger leadership. And those very same units would turn towards elections in Poland, Hungary, Brexit in the UK, and the United States. Russian hacking to influence the American election has dominated the news. At the very same moment, a new kind of politician was running for president, fueled by his mastery of these very same social networks. Which is why I alone can fix it. Just as the internet had disrupted our worlds of entertainment, business, and dating, it was now disrupting war and politics. It was a revolution that no leader group, army, or nation could afford to ignore anymore. Years later, we live in the result of these battles that are still ongoing. A world where online interactions have very real impact on what happens in the real world. And that means that if you are online, your attention is like a piece of contested territory being fought over in conflicts that you may or may not realize are unfolding all around you. Everything you watch, like, or share represents a tiny ripple on the information battlefield, privileging one side at the expense of all the others. Your online attention and actions are thus both targets and ammunition in an unending series of online skirmishes. In this new world, Attention is power. But we didn't get to this point by accident. We know that ISIS used the internet to gain influence and sow destruction in a totally new way. But unfortunately, it's not the first time we've seen new technology used to wage war. In fact, it's a through line in human history. Time and time again, humans have adopted technology originally intended to advance communication and foster peace as a means to conduct war and spread propaganda. This history has shaped our new world. That's next on Like War.
This is a production of iHeart Podcasts, Graphic Audio, and Goat Rodeo. Kara Schillen, that's me, is the series lead producer. This episode is just one of a seven-part series. Find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to dive deeper into the work of P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking, you can access the full audiobook, Like War, on which this series is based, wherever you get your audiobooks. Writing and editing from Kara Schillen. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan. Senior producers are Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky. Please share this series with the hashtag LikeWar to find other conversations about the series. Thank you for listening. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.